Hello, everyone, and thank you for sharing some of your time with us. The Reducing Stigma for Improving Maternal Health Virtual Forum is hosted in collaboration through Sync Collective, Avira Research Institute, and through the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board. Funding comes from the National Institute of Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Views expressed in this talk are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the views of the hosting organizations, funding organizations, or any organizations that the speakers may be professionally or personally affiliated with. This week on our forum, talking about reducing stigma to improve maternal health and practice and policy for alcohol and substance use in pregnancy, we are going to focus on the medical system. How does stigma play a role in the medical care of pregnant women who may be using substances? And what are the health outcomes, different practices, or protocols for alcohol and substance-exposed pregnancy? What role does stigma play in determining what practices may be best to use? Our first speaker is Troy Thompson, a physician assistant in Rapid City, and he has been practicing since 2015. He's affiliated with Monument Health and Project Recovery. Project Recovery provides medication-assisted treatment for people with substance use disorders and uses telemedicine to reach people in the state without access to a local clinic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, my name is Troy Thompson. I'm a physician assistant out of Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, my background is in emergency medicine, family medicine, and urgent care. Uh, but for the last several years uh, now, I've been uh, working with Project Recovery in Rapid City. It's a medication-assisted treatment facility uh, providing MAT or medication-assisted treatment to help uh, with those struggling with methamphetamine, alcohol, and opioid use disorders. Today, uh, I'd like to jump into uh, talk about some of the barriers to standards of care as it pertains to a substance use disorder uh, and also pregnancy with substance use disorder. Uh, this is a life or death uh, issue. You know, opi opioid overdose uh, just last year, 100,000 people died uh, between April 2020 and April 2021. Uh, a lot of these uh, deaths, if not all, uh, with the current treatments that are available could potentially have been prevented. So we'll start with some definitions. We'll go into a bit of uh, uh, the standards of care, intro to standards of care with substance use disorders. Uh, we'll talk about stigma related barriers to those standards uh, and then kind of what we need to address those. So starting out with definitions, abuse uh, is uh, the use of a substance like drugs or alcohol or a medication without a prescription in a way that's other than prescribed or intended for that substance uh, for the effect usually. Uh, alcohol, binge drinking, drinking to get drunk uh, would be an example. Um, but something as simple as you know borrowing some painkillers from a friend uh, is also it's in a way that's other than prescribed so it would be considered uh, abuse. Okay. Uh, dependence is a little bit more involved. The body has now been exposed to a certain substance enough to where the substance itself is actually part of our normal everyday functioning. It's our neutral with the substance is a neutral zone. Um, it, it affects homeostasis to have the substance removed. When it's removed or you, know, you discontinue use, uh, you develop withdrawal symptoms or cravings, physical symptoms uh, that because we are physically dependent on the substance. Um, you know, some lesser, uh, you know, lesser degree or more common substances that you might be aware of or it's happened to you would be caffeine, sugar, 
uh, nicotine. Those are uh, pretty common substances that cause physical dependence. <clears throat> Substance use disorder. Uh, this is now the addiction. Okay, this is this is the word that uh, you know fairly highly stigmatized addiction. It's it's considered a negative thing. Uh, so we like to use use disorder, substance use disorder. Uh, you know, uh, there's an ad on, on uh, the radio right now that uh, addiction has many faces. Texting while driving is one of them. Uh, put down the phone, you know. So, so the, the message is great. You know, we don't want people to be uh, texting while driving, uh, but they're using this word addiction uh, as it's intended, which is uh, it, it's considered negative, right? And so uh, if I'm a patient that is addicted to something, uh, it's a negative, it's viewed in a negative light. It's very difficult to um, come forward with that, to you know, seek help for that. And so uh, we'll talk about stigmas related uh, to even terms like this, but um, that eventually lead to getting in the way of barrier, a barrier to care, essentially. Uh, so substance use disorder, though, we've got the dependency there. We're physically dependent, uh, but now our use is in some way putting us at risk of significant impairment or altering our day-to-day. -day. So an example is we're at risk of an overdose or we're at risk of harm. Our health is at risk. Uh, we're putting ourselves at risk for HIV, hepatitis C infections, uh, if we're pregnant, poor pregnancy outcomes. Um, also starting to affect our roles in society or at home, school and work. Um, you know, our ability to fulfill our role obligations is being affected. That's, it's now, uh, the, and by the way, this is a medical diagnosis. This is a medical uh, condition. It's considered a mental health diagnosis. It's right in there with schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, bipolar, you name it. It's, it's there. It's, it's, it's got, it's well-defined. Uh, in other words, it's beyond a choice. Uh, we, we don't have control anymore. Some definitions, uh, harm reduction is really important to understand. Uh, a lot uh, in substance use disorder and addiction has to do, uh, harm reduction is, is huge because uh, it's, it's, so it's essentially policy practices, strategies, tools uh, aimed at reducing harm rather than um, solely on preventing the use to begin with. So in substance use disorder, examples would be uh, prescribing Narcan to, to individuals or their family members so that they can administer it uh, in case a patient were to use again or, or overdose uh, and potentially save their life. Clean needle exchanges to reduce the rates of hepatitis C and HIV uh, is another example. More common practices that you use every day, seatbelts, wearing a helmet when you're riding your bike, uh, those kind of things. Uh, you know, we don't intend on crashing our vehicle but we can't completely prevent it. And so we implement strategies to reduce the harm in the instance that it, it happens again. Recovery is another important definition. This is the goal for anyone with substance use disorder. And if you read this definition, it, it's almost as if, man, all of us should have this as a definition. We, we all kind of want to be in recovery here. It's a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. Uh, you know, that, that's the goal. Recovery, I really like that it includes, it's a process of change. It's not recovery period, it's recovery dot, dot, dot. It's, it's always evolving. We're always working to, to be better, to reach a full potential. And, you know, uh, it's important to understand that because especially with substance use disorder, sometimes we can get caught up on the type of treatment that someone's receiving or 
you know, the amount of times they've had, they've received treatment. Um, and, and, you know, what we get this extra pressure um, uh, placed on us to decide, you know, if an individual is truly in recovery or not. Uh, so to understand that it's a change, it's a process of change, I think is great. You know, a, a good example would be if I'm a smoker and I used to smoke two packs a day, now I'm to half a pack a day or even one pack a day. It's, it's a win, right? We're, we're heading the right direction. It's a process of change. We're improving our health and wellness. We're, we're, we're trying to reach our full potential with it. So a process of change, uh, our definition uh, is, is directly in line at, at Project Recovery. Uh, someone who is receiving medication-assisted treatment, they are in recovery, and that doesn't mean recovery period. We're done. Uh, it is a process. MAT. Medication-assisted treatment. When we talk about medication-assisted, we're, we're specifically for the substance use disorders. Uh, as it sounds, we're using meds to treat addiction. Okay, a common example that's already in use and many people have already heard of uh, nicotine replacement, like a nicotine patch or nicotine gum to help in tobacco use disorder. Uh, for substance use disorder, we're using buprenorphine uh, in opioid use disorder, and there's different, um, different brands there. Now, Trexone, Vivitrol, um, Bupropion, those are all medications used in alcohol and occasionally in methamphetamine uh, use disorder. It's kind of new emerging evidence that, that this is effective. And so uh, that's strategies that we've been implementing at Project Recovery, and we're showing, uh, they're showing a lot of success there, and we're being able to aid and, and help people. One of the things to note about medication-assisted treatment programs is this is a repeat visit. You know, because we're prescribing a med, it's very important that we get eyes on these people. We're, we're reevaluating uh, and constantly uh, assessing an individual. And what it does is it provides multiple opportunities to intervene in areas that need to be intervened in, uh, to provide access to care, uh, referral to specialties, um, you know, help in addressing certain barriers to that care. We can link them to counseling and social work, uh, get them to inpatient treatment if they need it, et cetera. The formation of a substance use disorder or sort of the evolution. Uh, if you take a look, uh, the green, that's, that's kind of neutral. That's where we are right now, everyday functioning. Uh, this pill, the, the pill icon, that could represent a cup of coffee it can re represent any substance, okay? You take it and you start, it, it increases in the bloodstream and gets up to the desired effect range. Uh, for opioids, it's a euphoric zone. It, it provides pain relief or euphoria. Uh, the same would be true of a lot of the illicit substances like methamphetamine or um, uh, heroin, et cetera. The longer that we use these, you know, maybe each of these little pill icons represents a few weeks of use. Um, by the second dose there, you can see it's not getting as high up into that euphoric zone. And so the next dose, maybe we're increasing it by an extra tab or pill. Uh, and that continues to, it goes from one to two to three. And it's, it's sort of a process. As you notice, the starting point is getting lower and lower and closer to the withdrawal area. Once it's in there, that's, that's our dependence. They're physically dependent now. Without the substance, we're going to be sick. We need the substance to get into the green, let alone into the euphoric zone, into the blue. Uh, and you can see it just continues. It's, it's, an, it's a cycle. Uh, more and more pills or substances, uh, all the way up to potentially more potent or lethal forms like injection or inhalation or, or uh, uh, snorting uh, or even more potent substances uh, going from hydrocodone for my chronic back pain to 
uh, heroin because it was all that was available and I got cut off from my doctor. I can't get it anymore. Uh, there's so many uh, stories, individual, everybody's got their own unique path of how they arrived at substance use disorder, but you'd be surprised at how uh, kind of identical it really is. You know, it started out a lot of times very innocent, innocently, um, you know, legitimate cause of pain uh, had a prescription and this dependence developed and now um, we're cut off of the medication, um, you know, or, you know, some do have history of starting with, um, you know, more uh, of a, you know, experimental, uh, experimenting with drugs just for the, the high uh, effect as well too. But, but the end result is uh, it's no longer a choice. Uh, they don't have a choice. They're just trying not to be sick. Uh, and it's just not an option not to, it's, it, it's just a matter of time. Uh, and eventually, as you can see, it leads to that overdose death. Here's some common uh, withdrawal symptoms. Pain is in here a few different times. Uh, pain is such a common withdrawal symptom. And, and I really uh, wanna emphasize that because if you're in any setting like urgent care or ER, um, or you're a patient listening to this and you're having breakthrough pain and you've been on opioids a long time, uh, this is a common withdrawal symptom. It means that there's likely a dependence underneath, and it's and it's and uh, you know we're withdrawing. We don't have enough of the substance in our system to maintain homeostasis. There's plenty of other things: anxiety, tremors, anorexia, uh, irritability, uh, insomnia, hot flashes. Uh, you name it, uh, on here. So standards of care. What is the best possible care that we can provide anyone? with a substance use disorder. We wanna be able to have early screening and early detection. And this is not just uh, screening because they're never gonna come forward. We would, we would like it to be uh, where individuals feel comfortable coming forward. Like, hey, I'm struggling with this. I, I think I got a problem, you know? Uh, it's very easy in my setting in an MAT clinic because patients are doing just that. We have a facility that, that it's, it's known that we are there not not to judge people, not to um, you know, kind of shun people for use, but to identify it so that we can help them treat. If that were the case for all clinics everywhere, uh, we'd be able to identify early and therefore uh, get people to the right treatment or start treatment. And ultimately, and especially in the case of opioid use disorder, prevent opioid overdose death. Uh, and remember, just because it's opioids, uh, you know, someone using methamphetamine, they're, they're at equal risk of overdose a lot of times. I mean, when you get something on the street, you don't know what's in there. And more and more, even marijuana, we're seeing laced with opioids and people are at a risk, especially if they're what we call opioid naive. They're not used to them. They're used to using meth. And, and all of a sudden there's fentanyl in there. Uh, they can uh, stop breathing overdose right away with that. Um, so prevention of overdose death, especially for opioid use disorder, that's that's number one. That's always our, our goal, with, especially with medication-assisted treatment. Um, after that, medical management of withdrawals and cravings. Uh, a lot of times we can't uh, provide effective care. We can't get any further in treatment for uh, substance use disorders until we have addressed these, these debilitating withdrawals. A, a perfect example would be alcohol. Sometimes the withdrawals are life-threatening in that case in alcohol. And so they need to be addressed. So early access, early identification of those and treatment, uh, medication-assisted treatment can help with that. Primary care providers sometimes uh, are involved in this, emergency rooms uh, as well. 
Uh, and then it's a working to prevent the return to use. And, and whatever the substance may be, once we've got them here and they're in there, we've identified them and we're getting the help started, we've addressed their withdrawal symptoms, now we gotta maintain the recovery. We gotta maintain and promote it from, from getting better. Medication-assisted treatment, once again, it, it's, it's helpful. Counseling is excellent in this situation. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, it's another one. Inpatient treatment, sometimes people need more than outpatient, what we can provide to the outpatient. So, so that uh, is, is another uh, standard of care that, that needs to be made available to people. Contingency management uh, and community programs or other uh, areas. Now that we've, uh, you know, we're, we're working on this recovery, there are bumps in the road or roadblocks or certain barriers that come up that sort of threaten that recovery and, and other barriers to that recovery. And so we need people to help identify those and manage those. And just a couple of examples, social work are, are, uh, social workers are great case managers uh, to help identify those barriers and connect them to the, the resources that you don't typically think about to help address barriers. You know, a, uh, example that happened very recently, a patient was wanting to find work, was wanting to work, couldn't work because it doesn't have a driver's license, couldn't get the driver's license because it doesn't have a social security number, couldn't get that because we don't have a birth certificate. And it was just this mess, but a social worker was able to help and get this straightened out and get them the right documents and now can get a, a job and work and start being self-sustainable. And so uh, those, are, uh, those are also areas that sometimes we don't think about. Primary care, there's underlying health issues that are becoming barriers to their recovery as well. Um, so barriers to care, uh, stigma is probably something, any, any barrier you can think of in some way or another is likely, in some way we can connect the dots to stigma. And so there's three sort of main types, social stigma, that's our societal view, um, you know, basically uh, uh, some sort of applied opinion on something uh, generally in a negative way, uh, something or someone you know, addicts are bad people, you know, there's a collective thought addicts are bad, you know, they're, they're choosing to get high, they're choosing to mess up their life, um, you know, or, or even uh, against a specific treatment, like, you know, because you're using medication to be sober, that's cheating, and that's not really recovery, um, you know, it can lead to misdiagnosis, a social stigma can, um, you know, well, this guy's just in here drug seeking, uh, let's get them out of here right away. It's it's related to that. There's certainly no uh, nothing else new going on. So we can we can miss something under there. They're, they're not getting um, the best quality of care at times as well. Um, self stigma that's applied uh, by the person themselves are internalizing social stigmas. You know maybe they don't think they deserve help or um, they they feel like well there's they're just doomed to fail because they're an addict. Um, structural stigma is societal and institutional manifestations of the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that create and perpetuate prejudice and discrimination. Uh, we see this in public and private institutions, legal systems, legislative bodies, and educational institutions. Um, you know, this is, uh, this is, as a society, we collectively are working in roles where we affect policy and uh, uh, institutional and educational, uh, you know, policies, and so we're carrying with us the social stigmas, and it's it's kind of carrying forward into our practices. Uh, so, a perfect example uh, of structural stigma would be uh, we require special criteria to be able to provide medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder to to be able to provide something like Suboxone. Um, 
there's certain criteria that needs to be met or at least considered before you can prescribe it, but not for other medical conditions. You know, I can prescribe fentanyl and morphine, no problem, uh, but I do need uh, special waivers to be able to, to treat it. And that some of that is being addressed and it's being, uh, it's kind of falling off and going away, which is great, but uh, you know, there's definitely more to consider and look at. Uh, the outcomes, ultimately, the outcome of stigma is lack of screening and identification. The people are not coming forward themselves because of the stigma, and uh, we're missing diagnoses because uh, of the stigma as well. There's a lack of treatment availability um, to people, there, and, and therefore a lack of access to standards of care. You know, there's there's many many um, examples of that that can be traced back to stigma, and there seems to be an increased em uh, emphasis on unproven strategies or blanket approaches to basically all lump together substance use, misuse, abuse, whatever the case may be, whether it's legal ramifications, criminalization, uh, you know, making something uh, you know a felony. Uh, federal policies uh, that end up restricting treatment, like I mentioned above, yeah. and so these are these are all outcomes um, that um, that we face. So pregnancy-specific barriers, um, everything we just mentioned, every type of stigma plus some. You know, now I'm not just a patient. Now I have additional title. I'm a mom, and. Uh, you know, I'm worried if I already have kids or if they find out or if I come forward, they try to get help because I'm concerned, I'm pregnant, I want to get this help. Will they take my baby away? Will they take my current children away? Uh, imagine being in that situation and desperately wanting to get help, but you have a fear that your, your children will be, you know, the, this fear of the unknown, you, you, you don't know. There's a heavy, heavy stigma, personal and social, uh, on, on moms who are currently struggling with addiction and substance use disorders, um, you know, uh, I think it boils down to a lot of times that we, we, we tend to have this social stigma that um, using a substance is a choice. It's just simply a choice. They chose to use while pregnant uh, and remember, especially in substance use disorder, it, it's just so much more complicated than that. Uh, it's not a simple choice. There's so many other variables going on. Uh, institutional stigma, specifically, uh, you know, pregnancy, there's, there's very, very well written out and strict policies on uh, reporting and implementing action after uh, the mother has been uh, basically detected to be using or the cord sample was obtained from the child and there, there was some substances present. And there's just much less emphasis on uh, screening initially and, de and detecting this uh, from being a problem in the first place and connecting mom to resources so that there's less use or we can we can get ahead of it before it becomes a problem. Um, you know, high emphasis on mandatory reporting and less emphasis on the pre and perinatal screening and the steps to take when the screening's positive or when the criteria is met to be reportable. So in other, in other words, I am a mandatory reporter if a patient is found to be using during pregnancy, it is a mandatory, legally reportable event. Uh, and so we do that, but as a provider that's a mandatory reporter, I have no idea what to tell my patient. Uh, and I can't honestly tell them what's going to happen with that. Uh, you know, for the most part, it sounds like the, you know, case is opened um, and, uh, you know, social services gets involved, but 
that trust level that you have to have for someone to be honest and upfront when it comes to something that's so highly stigmatized like addiction, you have to have a level of trust. And here I am mandatory. I have to report this person that trust is gone that, you know, and, and, and my lack of being able to articulate what is going to happen uh, to that patient or her child comes across as me withholding maybe a truth that they, they feel I know, like I know what's going to happen. They're going to take your kid. I just, I just don't want to tell you. So it's, it, I think more needs to be done on, uh, you know, even providers that are, are in the thick of this and managing addiction. We need, we need to have a better idea of what's, what's happening and maybe even more say on some of the policies, you know, past or current use of substances during or before pregnancy, it doesn't necessarily equal an unsafe environment for the kid. It doesn't necessarily equal that mom is not going to be able to get help. Uh, so there's there's always there's always room to intervene and uh, you know, kind of address it. But but please don't under, uh, misunderstand. You know, mandatory reporting. If if the baby is in danger, we have to take action. And I 100% agree with that. I think that there's room to improve upon our current process, though. Uh, barriers to care, pregnancy specific, again, you know, essentially it's, it's availability uh, of treatment to pregnant mothers for substance use disorder. Um, you know, it comes down to basically knowledge surrounding what treatment options are available. You know, uh, OBGYN providers, they have so much on their plate already. How, how you know, to add an additional, you know, thing that we're requesting to, to screen for. And, and in the case of opioid use disorder, we would, we would prefer in an in a M&T clinic, we, we like when people come to us already started on treatment, um, but you got to have people that know how to do it. You got to have resources to them to, uh, so that they have the info that they need to get people identified, screened, and started on treatment. Um, what else is needed? Uh, you know, so what do we need? What do we need to address these barriers? What do we need to address uh, some of the stigma? You know, it always starts individually. It, it starts with your own mindset. You know, how do you feel specifically about uh, uh, substance use, addiction, um, you know, and, and be careful not to play into stigmas related. Be aware of stigma. Stigma is a thing. And, and stigma, at the very end of the day, it, it prevents people from getting help. And so if your intention is good, I don't, I don't want, I don't want mom to be using drugs in pregnancy. Uh, we got to, the best way to approach that, the standards of care, the gold standards is to seek out uh, uh, medication assisted treatment, counseling, et cetera, right? Connecting with, with the evidence-based uh, resources that can help in that situation, uh, not to judge or not to shun or, 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 or anything else. Some of these other approaches that we tend to take. Uh, we need we need advocates. So whatever role you're in, whether it's a conversation with someone, or social media, uh, maybe you're a policymaker at whatever institution, your job, um, clinic, whatever the case may be. Uh, if if you're hearing this, chances are you either have a bit of an interest or there's some sort of uh, skin in the game with this. Um, you know, advocate, advocate for it, look into it, find additional uh, info, educate yourselves on there, uh, reach out to people that, that are experts. And that's, that's not me. I'm not an expert in this, but this is something that I have uh, got, I've, I've 
gone the road of kind of educating and learning more. I'm learning more every day with this kind of stuff, but there are experts out there and they they can help us make better policies uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, substance use disorder or or even tweaking our current policies. Uh, Law enforcement, you know, plenty of opportunity to to advocate there uh, and certainly uh, policies that are being made in law enforcement setting uh, related to substance use. Medical fields, you know, you have to understand that in, in the medical field, people look to us uh, for answers. And so if you if you are in a role where uh, this is something you see, uh, get the most accurate information. Understand that, uh, you know, stigmas creep their way into even, even medical care. And so uh, guard yourself against that. Watch out for that and make sure that you're not uh, perpetuating those. Um, get training. If you're, if you're a provider and you're already prescribing medication, especially if you're prescribing any opioids or anything like that, uh, look at getting your X waiver uh, and understand that you already can. Uh, as of recently, they dropped the X waiver requirement for the first 30 patients. Look at uh, learning to prescribe buprenorphine and Narcan, uh, which uh, will save someone's life someday. If you can, if you can start that, that doesn't mean you need to take them on as your new patient. Uh, you can, but if you want to start them and refer them to MAT, even better. Um, you don't need to be a specialist to do this. Uh, any setting will do. Okay. So in a nutshell, we need to increase our screening, uh, whether that's specifically as providers or, or uh, you know, counselors or whatever setting, educational settings uh, to, to work on screening and identifying disorder or being more open to people coming forward with, with uh, treatment uh, requests. Uh, we, we have to, there's always areas for improvement uh, in treatment availability, whether it's uh, streamlined access to inpatient treatment or uh, immediate easy access to MAT. Uh, you know, in, in putting this together, this is something that sort of spoke to me and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna put this in there and uh, hopefully somebody out there, uh, you know, appreciates it. Um, Stigma, the definition, uh, is a mark of disgrace, which is associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or person. Dis, if we break down disgrace, dis is a reversal or opposite of grace. Grace, which is a courteous goodwill that is freely given or whether whether it's deserved or not. Um, you know, it made me think of the, uh, a Bible story where uh, the girl is brought in for punishment. She, she's about to be stoned by this angry crowd. And uh, Jesus essentially says, well, okay, whoever's without fault, go ahead and throw that first stone. And it ends with everyone basically laying down the stones and walking away like, all right, never mind. She's given forgiveness. Uh, she's given grace. Uh, you know, we didn't have to consider the contest, consider the situation. Was she pregnant? I don't know. Was she pregnant? Because that we didn't have to consider all these uh, extra variables that we apply to things to help us make a decision. We just give grace and provide the best treatment that we can. This is a, a thought. I, 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 I didn't steal this, I guess. I, I, I really appreciated it. It was shared uh, with me by a peer support specialist. Uh, and I'm just going to read it. She's, she's basically talking about the irony of addiction here, and uh, she's referring to her addiction. I remember protecting my dark secret to great lengths so that no one would find out. It wasn't until it finally was discovered I was using drugs and my secret was out that I realized I was now free and able to start my path to recovery. I thought it was, it was really awesome to hear that. Uh, you know, it, it just strong words. It's such an irony 
that we have to guard these secrets. Um, and, and, and ultimately, if we didn't have to do that, we're opening the gates to our treatment. And I just, you know, what would it look like if that wasn't a thing? You don't have to guard your secrets. You go into your OB office, you can freely tell them like, look, I, I'm addicted to this substance, you know, or you go into a counselor or a school or any clinic uh, setting uh, where we offer help for every other disease process. Wouldn't it be great for someone to very openly be able to tell us, here's what I need and for us to be able to connect into that resource. So here's some resources available in South Dakota uh, for medication assisted treatment. I, I listed three, I, I hope, uh, and I feel very confident that there are more and there are a lot more providers out there that aren't medications assisted treatment facility specific, but they're doing other settings and they're prescribing this medication. Um, if you go to the website there, www.avoidopioidsd.com, uh, you, can, you can actually find a link to resources of prescribers. Uh, you can find the resource hotline there, the numbers listed. If you're interested, if your provider interested in getting um, your waiver treatment, go to the asam.org uh, website and uh, continue, to, uh, continue to educate and find resources. Thank you very much for listening. Appreciate your time. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to our series. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about the SYNC Collaborative, then you can check us out on Facebook at Project SYNC. That's S-Y-N-C-H. And if you're interested in participating in a couple of our projects, you can email us at projectsync at avira.org, or you can call or text us at 605-667-0035. The Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board has some great information and resources available. If you're interested in knowing a little bit more about tribal treatment resource, uh, you can check out their tribal treatment services resource guide on their website at bhr dot gtchb dot org and if you're interested in knowing about the programs for maternal and child health you can email Nora Bosom N-O-R-A dot B-O-S-E-M at gtchb dot org or call 0605-721-1922. If you're interested in knowing more about the tribal opioid response you can email Stacy Eagle Elk at S-T-A-C-I dot E-A-G-L-E-E-L-K at G-P-T-C-H-B dot org or call at 605-721-0327. For more resources about substance use or addiction centers in South Dakota, you can check out the addiction resource dot dot at Best Drug Rehab Centers in South Dakota or for general help, you can call across the state of South Dakota, the 221 Helpline, 211 Helpline Center. Uh, thank you all again for listening, and please be compassionate to yourselves and each other. Thank you.